There is a mystique around assassins that seems to have an undeniable draw. Ninjas, spies, gangsters, creeping through the dark shadows with silencers in one hand and a cocktail in the other. Media and daydreams have given these very historically real roles glitz, glamour, and tragic prestige. Of course, if I'm going to cover assassins, I wanted to take a look at some stories of some of the most intriguing women assassins I could find. Who were they? What did they do? And what happened to them? Welcome, my friends and loves. I'm Rockette Fox. Join me as we embrace the strange. story takes place on a warm summer day in July of 1768. The economy of France on the whole was on a downward descent, and in Normandy, a girl was born to a family impoverished, but aristocratic by name. When Marie-Anne Charlotte de Corday de Mont was a child, like most young ladies of station, her father sent her to a convent for her education. Within, she found a love for Voltaire, Plutarch, Rousseau, and the Enlightenment. In 1789, when she was just 21, the French Revolution broke like an angry dam. Perhaps influenced by a love for philosophy and a safe distance from the action, Charlotte Corday found herself more drawn to the political chaos and turmoil that engulfed the country. In 1791, she finally left the convent and moved to Cannes, where she stayed with a relative, during which time she became acquainted and enchanted with the Girondins, a political faction most noted for the fact that they were extremely critical of the overall revolutionary violence transpiring at the hands of their rivals, the Montagnards. Known for having the sentiments of a royalist, Charlotte Corday agreed with the moderate views of the Girondins and felt they were the only thing that stood between France and total collapse and bloodshed. And, to be fair, tensions were incredibly high. At this point, a number of poor and working-class people, or sans-culottes, had become inspired by the Montagnards' call for revolution and joined together in violent riots. In 1792, in what became known as the September Massacres, the sans-culottes murdered up to 1,400 prisoners, including Swiss guards, royal soldiers, nobles, and suspected counter-revolutionaries. It was a bloodbath. Charlotte kept apprised of what was happening, and as she read through articles and notes, 
primarily written by leading Girondin members. The name Jean-Paul Marat kept appearing. Jean-Paul Marat was a journalist for the L'Ami du People, or Friend of the People, who was known to not only regularly denounce anti-revolutionary activity and the aristocracy in his paper, but also call out and target those he felt were enemies of the revolution. While he certainly wasn't the only one calling for rebellion, the public nature of his activities and ever-increasing violence caused Charlotte to take action. In 1793, she told her family she would be moving to England and made her way to Paris. On July 13th, just 14 days from her 25th birthday, Charlotte Corday bought a simple kitchen knife and carefully, snugly, tucked it into her bodice. She made her way to Mra's home. Her ideal plan was to kill him in public. However, after inquiring, she discovered he was confined to his home with what I read to be described as a, quote, debilitating skin disease. This comes into play because when Charlotte arrived, after convincing Marat's wife she came bearing news on anti-revolutionary activities, leaving and coming back again, she was shown to the bathroom where he was currently soaking in a tub, which evidently was not an uncommon meeting place for him due, again, to his condition. Charlotte, undeterred, brought up as many names, including Girondin sympathizers, officials, and refugees, all of which Marat assured her would be guillotined. That was all she needed. With one swift motion, Charlotte removed the knife from her bodice and plunged it into Marat's chest, killing him on sight. It's then said that she waited in the bathroom for police to arrive, allegedly saying she, quote, killed one man to save 100,000. She herself was guillotined four days later at the age of 24. certainly will continue to be those of all types who take on the identity of assassin due to beliefs, politics, revenge, money, or just thrill. This next story I have for you is perhaps one of the least straightforward and most unfortunate instances I've come across. The man shouted in a language that was familiar but with a thick accent that felt foreign. He pointed a finger at her like it might go off, saying that her Cantonese gave her away. How could she be a northern Chinese orphan if she only spoke Cantonese, a southern dialect? She remained silent. She was this close to having gotten a full dose of cyanide from the cigarette, like her partner. But the police in Bahrain had snapped it away from her. No, she wasn't Chinese, though she had trained in Macaw to speak Cantonese while on missions. No, she wasn't Japanese, though 
She had spent three years learning Japanese from the kidnapped Yeiko Taguchi. No, she was from Kaesong, North Korea. And Kim Hyun Hui was a spy. Born in 1962, her father was a diplomat, allowing the family a little more flexibility than most. They lived in Cuba for a time. Kim Hyun Hui was a strong student. She excelled in her studies and, at the age of 10, was even selected to present flowers to a senior South Korean delegate at the North-South Talks in 1972. She had dreams of becoming an actress and excelled there too, appearing in the first Technicolor film of North Korea. All of that changed, though, after graduating high school. She barely began the next phase of her education when the intelligence agency came calling. She was recruited. They gave her a new name, Oak Hua. And for the next several years, she was rigorously trained, tested, and shown propaganda films that, among other things, said the South was, according to the Wikipedia article I found, quote, a corrupt fiefdom of the United States, where the people wallowed in poverty. And it was, of course, up to the North to correct things. Her move came in 1987, when she was 25. She had already been through Europe, posing as the daughter of Kim Sung-il, a fellow agent. And for this maneuver, they would be teaming up once more. However, this would no longer be simple travel and preparation. No, this would be big. She received an order that evidently came handwritten directly from Kim Il-sung. They would be blowing up flight KAL-858. After this, she was told she could return home to her family, leaving the life of intelligence work behind her. Under the name Mayumi Hachia, with her, quote, father, Shinichi Hachia, Kim Hyunhui and her partner traveled to Moscow, Budapest, Vienna, Belgrade, and finally, Saddam International Airport in Baghdad, having convened with fellow North Korean agents along the way. It was November 27, 1987. After a three-and-a-half-hour wait, the two boarded the plane with their time detonation explosives. At Abu Dhabi International Airport, the two disappeared, and the plane resumed its course. Then, on November 29th, around 2.05 p.m. Korea Standard Time, while en route to Bangkok, the two bombs in overhead bins 7B and 7C exploded. All 115 aboard were killed, including 113 South Korean nationals, an Indian national, and a Lebanese national. Many of the Koreans on board were young workers returning home after time spent in the construction industry in the Middle East. This might have been the end of the story, but Kim Hyun-hui and her partner's passports were discovered to be forgeries in Bahrain, after which came the cyanide cigarette incident. Her partner dead, while hers failed, although she had been hospitalized. Now, she was being held and questioned in Seoul. At first, she refused to speak, never breaking from her story of being Pa Chui Hui, 
an orphan from northern China. However, something strange happened. During this time, she was taken from time to time out of her cell. She was shown what Seoul was like. The affluence, the prosperity, the joy, the ability to speak freely, the ability to criticize their government. Kim Hyun-hui was stunned. This went against everything she'd learned, been shown, been told. She'd been taught her actions were necessary to help reunite a singular Korea. But this was a moment she would later say made her realize she'd, quote, committed the crime of killing compatriots. On the eighth day, she told them that she was indeed a North Korean agent and confessed everything, not only about the part she played in the bombing of Flight 858, but of Kim Il-sung's involvement as well. In March of 1989, she was sentenced to death, but later pardoned by President Ro Tae-woo, who said the real culprit was the North Korean government, Kim Hyun-hui being a brainwashed victim. She went on to marry a bodyguard, who was also a former South Korean agent, and they have two children. And later she wrote The Tears of My Soul, an autobiography from which she donated the proceeds to the families of the victims of Flight 858. Currently, she lives in an undisclosed location and is under protection from the North Korean government retaliation. However, that doesn't stop her from giving her thoughts and analysis on the current goings-on of her former country. A country in which, by the way, the family she left behind was arrested and sent to a labor camp. Unfortunate pawns to the end, as I don't think the government would have actually allowed Kim Hyun-hui to go back home after this supposed final job. The final story I have for you takes place in 1939. Now, there are many stories of bravery, heroism, and deadly deeds of secrecy being done on both sides during World War II. It was a time truly like none other, from the elitely trained to everyday citizens finding themselves in extraordinary situations People did what they had to, not only to survive, but to fight for what they believed in. Freddie and Truce Overstegen had these lessons deeply ingrained through their mother, who I imagine would have been her own force to be reckoned with. A single working mother of two, during a time I can't imagine that would have been easy in any way, shape, or form. Ms. Overstegen was a Dutch woman who lived by her beliefs without question. 
a self-proclaimed communist. It was this year of 1939 when the war loomed over all of Europe that she began to take Jewish refugees into the family's home. Only one year later, in 1940, the Nazi forces invaded the Netherlands and began a harrowing occupation that would last until the end of the war in 1945. The three Overstegens took to the streets, distributing anti-Nazi propaganda for the resistance in the form of pamphlets, newspapers, and warnings glued across posters that called for men to come work in Germany. It was dangerous work, especially considering that Freddy was only 13 at the time and Truce only 15. And if caught, it wouldn't just be a slap on the wrist. The punishment for acts like this included being put to death. Of course, it would turn out that youth was one of the things the girls actually had going in their favor. Both visually read younger and with braids and dress the part, they appeared far too young and innocent to be suspected of working with the resistance. One year into the Netherlands occupation, a Harlem resistance group commander carefully approached Ms. Overstegen about recruiting Freddy and Truce officially into the resistance. She gave her a blessing and the girls agreed, after which they were told what it was they had agreed to, sabotaging bridges and railway lines, and, the man would add, learning to shoot, shoot Nazis. Freddy would later recall her sister responding, well, that's something I've never done before. And learn, they did. Bas von Bendebeckman, who is a former researcher at the Netherlands Institute for War, Holocaust, and Genocide Studies, has said that, quote, They were unusual, these girls. There were a lot of women involved in the resistance in the Netherlands, but not so much in the way these girls were. There are not that many examples of women who actually shot collaborators themselves. Indeed, after learning to shoot Nazis, the two would go on assassination missions themselves. This after documented occasions when, at least once, Truce had lured an SS officer into the woods before another resistance member could shoot him. However, in time, they focused their sights on Dutch collaborators who put the resistance and Jewish community at risk. Freddie continued to maintain a youthful appearance, and so happened to have quite the skill for maintaining a tale or keeping a lookout. After all, few suspected an innocent young girl or pair of girls to ambush with deadly precision from their bicycles, which they did many times. How many is unknown, as records weren't really kept and the women would never really say, only saying when they were asked that they were soldiers and soldiers never told. In 1943, the two joined up with a former university student who dropped out as she refused to sign a pledge of loyalty to Germany, Hanny Schaft. The three became best friends and an assassination cell that stuck together carrying out missions until 1954, just before the end of the war, when, unfortunately, Hanny was found and arrested. Stories tell that at the firing line, 
she was initially wounded by her executioner and then said, I'm a better shot, before finally being put to death. Following the war, the sisters moved on, or tried to, the best that they could. It's not easy to forget, though, if anyone ever can. Drews would sculpt and said that the two, quote, did not feel it suited us. It never suits anybody unless they are real criminals. Freddie said that she coped by, quote, getting married and having babies, though still suffered insomnia, and in an interview remembered how once when she had shot someone, she had the immediate impulse to want to go and help. I can't imagine how that must have been, bearing in mind again that by the time the war was over, Freddie, the younger of the two, would have only been 17. The older would only have been 19. Both sisters died at their respective 92. And while we recognize their incredible lives and story now, for a long time, unfortunately, the Netherlands simply cast them as communists. It wasn't until 2014, 69 years later, that they would receive national recognition in the form of the War Mobilization Cross. While... Recognition was certainly not Freddie's, nor Truce's, nor Hanny's reasons for doing what they did. The amount they sacrificed for what they were able to accomplish during a very dark time is nothing short of extraordinary, and their stories should absolutely be recognized here. It's the least that we can do. That, and making sure that history never repeats itself. here to judge or condone any of the women or the actions that they took. But I do think it's valuable to learn about their stories and the circumstances that surrounded them. After all, despite the mystique we may give to the role of assassin, at the end of the day, they are just people who, in these instances at least, found themselves as a part of something much bigger, for better or for worse. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of Fantastically Strange. I hope you've enjoyed it. The bonus story on the Patreon this week takes a look at the story that inspired my dive into Lady Assassins. The story of a private vendetta that captured the heart of a nation and let them off scot-free. To find out more, check out www.patreon.com slash rocketfox. As for me, come visit for a spell at fantasticallystrange.com and on Instagram at fantasticallystrange and Twitter at fantasticoddpod. As always, thank you so, so much for your support. If you're enjoying the show so far, please let me know. Maybe even a follow, share, or review. I write, research, edit, 
and do all of the things myself. And I am so honored to be able to bring you stories about topics that I'm passionate about. And your ear means the world to me. If you do have any topics you'd like to see, any questions, comments, or just to say hi, email me at fantasticallystrange at rockatfox.com. All sources are linked and credited in the show info. The amazing logo illustration is by Constance Hermit, and the killer intro song, Hey Dorothy, is by Cruise Machine. Thank you so, so much again, and I cannot wait to see you next time. Surround.